Well, hello and welcome to Rare Nautical Reads with me, Chris Stanmore Major. In this episode, we're continuing William Creelock's Vagabonding Under Sail, and we're on Chapter 5. Chapter 5. One Another's Noses. And hold one another's noses to the grindstone hard. A quote from Lamb. Astern of us, the hills of the Tagus folded into the mist, and to port, the coastline of Portugal strode southward in a series of bold cliffs and headlands, outpacing us in the calm. As we idled down towards Cape St. Vincent, shoals of sardines flickered over the water, fleeing from some enemy we could not see, always the unending fight for existence. Another day of calms did little to help us on our way, and it was not until the evening of the third day that we edged into the stream of ships passing round St. Vincent. We swung to the eastward now, with a fresh northerly breeze off the land. The day had been one of clear, brittle sunlight and unblemished blue skies, and the sunset flashed vivid molten streaks across the sky and shaded into a perfect night. Content carried all her fore and aft canvas and the port half of her square rig. The water was smooth in the lee of the land, and for the first time since leaving home, she swung evenly through the night at seven knots. It was too perfect for sleep, and we sat in the cockpit and talked of what lay ahead and of what we had left behind. And strangely enough, we talked too of our eventual homecoming and where it might be. For a long time we watched the moon floating above us, casting its gleam and shadow on the curve of the squaresels, and marvelled at the sheen of phosphorescence which content spun into the ebony waters. I was lucky enough to be on watch at dawn the next morning. The breeze had almost vanished and the whole sea was hushed and glossy. Ahead of us, the sun awoke behind the mountains of Spain, and against the pale crimson background stood the castellated outline of Cadiz. Cadiz, that had seen the ships of the Phoenicians in its bay, had heard the march of the Roman legions, and had greeted treasure-laden galleons from the Spanish main. As we approached the shore, a mist seeped down from the hills and blanketed the town, the harbour, and finally ourselves. We crept in, with beads of moisture trickling down the tanned mainsail. We heard the muffled tolling of surf, then, almost miraculously, the mist lifted for a moment to show rocks close ahead and the outline of a lighthouse, and closed in again. We found a channel buoy and steered by compass for the next, and the next, until the last of the breeze left us drifting on the ingoing tide. We started the motor and nosed cautiously forward. A ship's bell clanged dangerously close ahead of us. Suddenly, the hulk of a destroyer loomed before us, and then another, and then breakwaters and docks, and as the mist began to disperse in the morning sunshine, we came to anchor among some trading catches. Something unusual had been happening ashore, for a line of warships, dressed overall with flags, lay in the harbour, and the streets we could see near the waterfront were lined with gaily draped balconies and paper lanterns and decorated with arches and columns of greenery. As Land said, perhaps they'd seen us coming. We later discovered that Franco himself had visited the town and the naval base the previous day. Perhaps the resultant excitement accounted for the fact that during our five-day stay we saw no sign of the health authorities, 
though for four of those days we had conscientiously flown our yellow Q flag to indicate we were from a foreign port and wished to be cleared by the medical authorities. We found Cadiz to be a charming old walled city whose every stone breathed history. Behind the plain facades of the houses in the narrow streets we glimpsed delightful little indoor courtyards where dwarf palms and potted shrubs were surrounded by tiled floors and small balconies. There was a strong Moorish influence in the architecture and beyond the massive brass-studded doors which had secured the inhabitants against raiders from the sea lay delicately traced wrought iron gates. From the ramparts which girt the city we watched the shipping in the bay as the Spaniards must have watched the disdainful drake setting fire to the anchored fleet. But perhaps the people had cause to be grateful to Drake, for he took 3,000 pipes of sherry back to the English court and established its popularity there. Our last day we found content dragging anchor in a squall, so making a virtue of necessity we weighed anchor and with the help of the engine worked out of the harbour, out of the bay and headed south again. The wind was fair for us and gradually strengthened during the night. The time came to lower the topsail, but on its way down it jammed between the belly of the mainsail and the shrouds. Ernest climbed the ratlines to free it while we rounded up slightly into the wind. The topsail was scarcely freed when, with a sharp crack, the flogging jib split from the clue. We lowered it immediately and with a safety line round my waist, the jib and I had a little battle of our own on the bowsprit end. The two forward portholes seemed to be watching me in the moonlight and every now and again Old Content nearly dipped me under a wave. Even in the darkness it seemed that the bow wave broadened into a grin at each forward surge. Progress, though uncomfortable, was good during the night, for before dawn we saw the distant lights of Tangier backed by the shadowy outlines of the brooding mountains on the coast of Africa. Later in the morning we skidded round into the Straits of Gibraltar and waltzed straight into the arms of a Levanter. We had, of course, never experienced one of these strong local easterlies, but the arching black cloud to windward left little room for doubt. We barely had time to reef before it burst upon us, but once the first onslaught was over, we found a strong easterly set carrying us towards Gibraltar. That afternoon, in a flat calm and dismal rain, the first they had had for many months, we entered the port. For a few minutes the naval port authorities swarmed over us and then departed in a flurry of gold braid and clanking swords after a most efficient display. By day Gibraltar is nothing but a mountain of rock, with ugly water catchments on one side and a densely packed town and harbour on the lower slopes of the other. But at night we saw nothing of the barren skyline or the sheer face of the landward end, only the myriad twinkling lights clinging desperately to the hem of the rock lest they slip into the sea. In the narrow streets we saw the lighted doors of innumerable nightclubs and the patchwork of service uniforms on the crowded sidewalks. Here and there a rickety cab drawn by a drowsy horse threaded its way through the traffic. There is a law on the rock which forbids the sounding of horns and instead the drivers slap the outside of the car doors to rouse the pedestrians. Apart from the mixed population of Spanish and English, with, as we noted, many of the pretty girls which such a combination seems to produce, there exists another curious little community. Don first met some of its members when we were strolling along a quiet road, probably thinking about butterfly hunting 
as was his wont. Suddenly he stopped. Shambling down the road toward him was a band of apes. Quite solemn-faced and thoroughly at home, they plodded past him, and not so much as a glance did they give him. These apes were a sort of mascot and have the freedom of the rock. It is even said that a special allocation of military rations is drawn for them. Perhaps they're not so dumb. To us, Gibraltar was the end of a stage of our journey, and we planned to spend at least a month there, completing yet more of the fitting out we had been unable to do at home. In many ways, Gibraltar was ideal for our purpose, for we found it a cheap place in which to live. In the shops, we found provisions long unprocurable in England, and we never tired of the huge swordfish steaks which could be bought so cheaply in the market. The fact that we were below the minimum size for harbour dues enabled us to lie free of charge alongside a convenient quay. Fifty yards from us was the beautiful tall ship Carl Vinnen, a five-masted topsail schooner. We decided, clearly once an aristocrat of the sea. But now, her tapering steel masts and yards were showing the signs of neglect, and an aged watchman and an incredibly mangy dog tottered about her once proud decks. What a magnificent training ship, we thought, for a country which had kept faith with sail. Later, we heard that she had been bought for use as a coal hulk. Soon after our arrival, we started work on the boat, and till the day we left, we took little time off for relaxation. As long as daylight lasted, we worked for the ship, and usually in the evenings, we worked for ourselves, trying to cope with the host of tasks which seemed to assail us, household duties, darning socks, writing letters and diaries. This diary-keeping became quite an undertaking, especially for Ernest and me. Len was rather slap-happy about his own. Sometimes in a burst of enthusiasm, he wrote a full account of our doings for two days, and then nothing for a week. I can't write, was his standard excuse. John kept his diary more meticulously than any of us, but was rather frowned upon by Ernest and me because we considered that he achieved this simply by cutting down his entry to a few sentences giving the bare facts of the day. He spent the time thus saved plucking at the strings of his guitar or trying to shoot the fish in the harbour with a bow and arrow. Ernest, who took life a little more seriously, as far as anyone uncontent took anything seriously, joined me in keeping detailed records of everything we thought and did. As a result, we were usually several days behind and ended up by appealing to Don for information. Content, seething with activity, resembled a gigantic ant's nest as we staggered on deck with our burdens, deposited them on the ever-growing heterogeneous mountain of gear on the quayside beside us, and plunged below for more. In any work on the boat, our first task was usually to empty her of as much as possible. To tell the truth, we never had quite enough room for all the ship's gear and the personal belongings of four young men and Oddments of junk were constantly being exuded from nooks and crannies like the filling from a meringue. We took out all the canned goods stowed in the bilges, removed their labels so that they would not be washed off and clog the pump, lightly greased each can and painted code letters on them for identification. The forecastle was painted virgin white, making it the showplace of the ship, a position hitherto held for a time by the gaily painted cream and blue lavatory. We laid linoleum on the cabin floor and at Len's instigation bought a maroon carpet to cover the floor of the saloon when entertaining special guests, 
such as impressionable damsels or sundry potentiates. Ernest, as ship's carpenter, undertook most of this work, while Don and I corked the deck and thoroughly oiled both the rigging and ourselves. Len had to fly home on business in the midst of all this, but much to our relief, returned soon afterwards carrying a piano accordion as reinforcement for the ship's orchestra. This reinforcement was carried a stage further when Ernest bought a pair of rhythm brushes. These led a somewhat useless hermit life at the back of one of the bookshelves, but somebody discovered that the stiff wires in the brushes were perfect for pricking the nozzles on our stove burners. We were relieved by Len's return because we feared that we might still not be far enough from home to be free of every tie. We were also very conscious of the fact that Gibraltar, and to some extent Lisbon and Tangier, is the graveyard of so many voyages similar to our own. It is far enough from England for the discomforts to have outweighed the novelty, and far enough for the crews to break out in a rash whenever they see each other. For this is the real danger which faces such an undertaking. Storms or misfortunes or shortage of money need not end a cruise if the crew holds together, but nothing will save it if it does not. Bearing all this in mind, we were elated to find ourselves in good heart and eager to continue. We were never prouder than when visitors to Content remarked that she was a happy ship. Probably the greatest contributing factor was our constant chasing of time. It is difficult to be miserable if one is busy. The redoubtable Edward Alcard, who had preceded us from Lisbon, was in Gibraltar fitting out Temptress for the Atlantic crossing and often came aboard to chew over the limitless topic of boats and their ways upon the sea. One evening, the five of us visited La Linea, a small neighbouring Spanish town with a reputation of its own. Within a few minutes, an obnoxious, oily young man had attached himself to us. You want to see exhibition, senor? Plenty of pretty young girls. No, we do not want to see an exhibition, we told him. But we did want to change a pound note so that we could buy ourselves a meal. Our guardian angel looked slightly disappointed. Very well, he said. I give you 70 pesetas. My repulsive young friend, we said sweetly, you will give us exactly 100 pesetas. Okay, I give you 90 pesetas. 100. Very well, he said at last. For you, I make it 100. Come with me. We followed him into a small house where he conferred with a fat, jovial woman. The fellow turned to us and we proffered our note. She say she can give you only 95 pesetas, he said, in a last attempt. For answer, we nonchalantly formed up across the exit. Our average weight was about 175 pounds. He must have weighed about 135. We got our hundred. A strange black sailing craft sidled into the berth ahead of us one day. She was the yacht Blackbird, a converted Brixham trawler of uncertain vintage. But what particularly interested us was that this was the ship offered to the original expedition, which had brought the four of us together. What we saw gave us food for thought. Usually there is a good deal of fraternisation between yachts in a foreign port, but scarcely a word could we, or anybody else for that matter, get from this strangely silent crew. They were like a party of grave diggers holidaying in a morgue. Two girls were among the crew, one we christened Naive, and the other, a strapping young woman who seldom wore more than the bare minimum, we called Beef in Brief. We never discovered the destination 
of Blackbird. There were, however, several other yachts in the harbour with whom we became good friends. There was the sturdy Siak with a Scots family aboard and the Gerenuk aboard which we spent some hilarious hours with the charming couple who owned her. There was smart little Valfreya, whose crew of three young men spoke our language, and the two large yachts, Anya and Idola. Finally, there were our very good friends on board the graceful schooner, Molly Hawk, whom we had met in Lisbon and whom we were to meet again in the Caribbean. Visiting other yachts was one of the few relaxations we allowed ourselves. We did, however, manage to investigate a few of the nightclubs in the town. In one in particular, for the price of one drink which we sipped a molecule at a time, we could watch Spanish singing and dramatic dancing, which was extremely attractive and very well and sincerely executed. One morning I poked my head through the hatch to see a stockily built middle-aged man gazing down at content. It is not difficult to distinguish the boat lover from the merely curious, so I asked him aboard. Thus it was that we first met our friend Peter Paul, as we called him, for his real Yugoslav name sounded something like a sneeze and was quite unpronounceable. He had a domed bald head and wide cheeks, a strong but sensitive face. Peter Paul had risen to high rank in the Yugoslav Navy and had shone in the diplomatic service, earning decorations from many of the European powers. Then came Tito. Peter Paul could not accept the new regime and so chose exile. Across our saloon table, we looked at the man who had once moulded treaties between nations. Tears came to his pale blue eyes when he talked of his country in his broken accent. And now, he said, now I am the captain of the little Maria, running emigrants to South America. Once I commanded a ship of war, now I have a broken down little tramp. He paused for a moment, then continued quietly, almost to himself, now I have troubles with the Spanish authorities, but one time I was decorated by their country for arranging a trade treaty. He sighed. But it is so charming to have met someone I can talk to, and he beamed round at us. Peter Paul was a lonely man, a man without a country. He told us, too, a story of a young grocer from Hamburg who, to prove his worth to a doubting fiancé, had set out to cross the Atlantic in a tiny boat. Though knowing nothing about navigation, he managed to reach the Canary Islands, where Peter Paul was at the time. The German council did everything possible to dissuade the young man and ask the help of Peter Paul with his knowledge of nautical matters. But the venture appealed to the whimsical Peter, and when he found Müller, the grocer, still determined to continue, he gave him all the help he could. The boat, yes, he said to us, I put a deck on it and renewed the rigging, but the man, no, he had no brain for scientific matters, and I could teach him no navigation. So I did the best I could. To him I said, Hans, when you leave this island, take your compass and steer three hands' breadths to the left of west for ten days, and then for ten days more steer west, and after that steer one hand's breadth to the right of west. Peter Paul spread out his hands. At least I knew he would land somewhere. It was a long time before we heard the end of the story, but eventually a letter arrived with a newspaper clipping. Hans Mueller had awakened one morning to find himself and his little boat strangely still. 
he had run aground on one of the Bahama Islands. The clipping was of a wedding group in the States. In the centre of the group were Hans and his girl. When Len had returned to content, he had brought news of an intended rendezvous with two relatives for Christmas in the Canary Islands. It was now nearing the end of November, time to be on our way again. We motored across the bay to the little Spanish port of Algeciras to collect our mainsail and jib left there for repairs and spent two days rebending sails. Our departure for Tangier coincided with a Spanish fleet manoeuvre and we caused a mild panic in the ranks by sailing down the line of destroyers with our ensign dipped in salute, for a warship is obliged to return the salute of any vessel, however insignificant. Well, that's the end of the first chapter, and before we go on to the second chapter, I just wanted to share with you the fact that it's a great pleasure to me to be able to share these somewhat unusual, unique and rare nautical books with you, and it's only made possible by the kind donation by Bruce Hassey of his late father, Rudolph's Nautical Library. I know that when Bruce made the offer to me of whether I could take it over and store the books, he had no idea that I might do this with them and share them with so many people. But I hope that it's a fitting memorial to the decades that Rudy spent bringing these books together. And I want to thank the Hassey family for the great trust they placed in me by making me custodian of this incredible library. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, you're getting something from these stories, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner or following the link in the podcast description. And there you'll find a link to be able to donate $5 a month to the podcast. That's little more than the cost of a cup of coffee at Starbucks. And that money added together from all the different people from all around the world that are listening to the podcast makes it possible for me to spend approximately 20 hours per week reading the books and editing the shows ready for the podcast. Now, I really appreciate any donations that you're able to make, but if at the moment economic realities mean that it's not possible for you to share money in that way, don't worry about it. I think Rudy and myself will be most happy just to know that people are hearing the stories, learning from the mistakes and the triumphs of forgotten navigators, and enjoying a rip-roaring sailing story. Let's get on with the next chapter. 6. The Jingling of the Guinea but the jingling of the guinea helps the hurt that honour feels. A quote by Tennyson. From Gibraltar's summit, the Levanta cloud streamed like the forelock from a giant's head, and we rolled and yawed across the narrow strait to Tangier. The African coast rose and fell in a series of steep hills and dark valleys until it spread out into the Bay of Tangier. In this crossing, we seemed at last to have left home waters for the strait separated not only Europe from Africa, but the Western way of life from the Eastern. It would be difficult to find a city quite like Tangier, an international port controlled partially by the French and partly by the Spanish. The health officer, in his little red fez, had scarcely left us before an unctuous individual with black plastic hair oozed aboard, exuding an air of welcome and cheap wine, and asked us if we would care to sell our motor. That was Tangier. From the harbour, motor yachts slipped out with cargoes of American cigarettes for the black markets of the Mediterranean. As a result, any yacht which was known to have called or be calling at Tangier became the object of officially cocked eyebrows and of the knowing winks and overtures of the waterfront stalwarts. 
the very fact that we were going to Tangier had produced some interesting results in Gibraltar. One evening in the very correct and hospitable Royal Gibraltar Yacht Club, a neatly dressed Englishman drew up alongside me at the bar. You are from the content, he asked. I am. I hear you're going over to uh, Tangier soon. Yes, I said. We hope to leave here about the end of the week. I just wondered, old man, whether you would care to have the name of a reliable contact over there. Diamonds, you know. Got a pencil? I'll write it down for you. A few nights later, a tall bearded gentleman, whom we knew to be in the smuggling game, came to chat with us. The drift of the conversation soon became apparent. He asked us about the accommodation in our boat, about the size of our cabins and the amount of stowage space available. We were being sounded for a possible assignment. Our interrogator ended with a piece of melodramatic advice. He earnestly warned us to steer clear of two notorious characters connected with smuggling in Tangier. Apparently murder and sudden death were, to them, merely moves in the game. As soon as we reached Tangier, we were greeted with news of some friends of ours. The Lucia has been searching for you, we were told. We had met the Lucia in Spain. She was a fast motor yacht, a converted naval craft with a merry band aboard, but something about her accommodation had struck us as curious. There was a section of her accommodation which was unaccounted for in the layout we saw. We soon decided why. She was a smuggler, owned by a London syndicate, on her way to Tangier. When we parted, we had left a worried crew behind us. The paid skipper had had to be dismissed for various misdemeanours, and the owner was far more at home in a cocktail lounge than the wheelhouse of a ship. While we were in Gibraltar, they had reached Tangier, but the prospect of taking the ship for her first Mediterranean run, with only their scant knowledge to guide them, was too much. Then they had thought of us. They would engage Ernest and me as navigator and skipper for the first run. However, content failed to show up, and eventually they decided to go on their own, sparing us the agony of a tussle between moral integrity and greed for gold. I sometimes wonder which would have won. In the three days we were in Tangier, we could not really absorb its atmosphere, but we could appreciate the strange jumble of contrasts it offered. There were the steep alleys and veiled women in the Arab quarter, and modern buildings and Paris fashions in the French. In a winding street near the market, one could buy any currency in the world at the little stalls, whose rates were chalked up each day on notice boards. One got the impression that the city was an incubator for every type of racket. One evening, we decided to go in search of the attractive Spanish music we had heard broadcast over our radio from a well-known restaurant. After asking our way, we were saddled with a guide, and though he was a somewhat unsavoury-looking specimen, we padded along in his wake, leaving the navigation to him. But the scenery was not what we expected, for we plunged into dingy, winding thoroughfares. Still, we decided to carry on and see what developed, pausing now and again to bring our dead reckoning up to date in case we wanted to find our way back in a hurry. At length we came to a darkened doorway where a brass plate bore the legend La Select. In answer to our guide's knock, a pert blonde opened the door and stood aside. We were in a slightly superior French brothel. We couldn't immediately flee in face of the enemy, but when we were ushered into a small cosy room with a distinctly uninhibited style of decoration, we put the helm hard down and rounded up to the small bar leading off the entrance. Madame ushered us to a corner table, 
and while we were being supplied with some appalling Spanish gin, a flotilla of trim little French craft ran over under short canvas and threw grappling irons aboard. The situation rapidly became untenable, so swallowing our drinks as hurriedly as seared pallets could allow, we got underway and made for the exit, casting a bow wave of amorous mademoiselles to port and starboard. We abandoned the search for the music. The little inner harbour in which content was moored was packed with a weird selection of small craft. Many of them had started out on long cruises and now rested there, deserted and forlorn, memorials to abandoned dreams. It must have caused some astonishment when, after only three days, Content slid out of her berth to continue on her way with her reputation comparatively unsullied. We caught another Levanter when we rounded the end of the mole and by evening had run around to Cape Spartle and were heading southward down the coast of Africa. By dawn the following morning, the breeze had fallen light, for we were out of the sphere of the Levanter and the coastline had slipped out of sight. We were completely becalmed in the afternoon and swam in water which was breathtakingly clear and blue, as only deep, tranquil water can be. From beneath we could look up and see Content's coppered hull suspended above us, every detail discernible. Even as prosaic an object as an empty can acquired a certain magic as we watched it swaying and sparkling deep, deep into the blue. We had hoped to visit an unfrequented port on the Moroccan coast and had chosen Port Lawtree up the Wadi Shabu, but our slow progress made that impossible if we were to reach the Canaries on time. By general vote, we decided to push on to Casablanca. Towards evening, we were rewarded with a fair breeze from the northeast, and with the help of our reaching staysail, made better progress. For two more days, we continued down the coast, sometimes almost stationary in a calm, sometimes wafted gently by a fickle little zephyr. At night, we watched the phosphorescent trails of porpoises and sighed for the faint land breeze. But we were quite happy. It was only at sea that we managed to find such leisure. During the fourth night, we were encouraged by the loom of Casablanca's light and in the morning motored the last few miles over a completely windless sea. Ahead of us, the rolling line of surf, a feature of the coast at this time of year, showed beneath a thick land haze. A fishing boat entered the harbour ahead of us. She was a lobsterman from the Brittany coast of France. She carried the live lobsters in her hold in constantly changing water and could only stop in the harbour long enough to drop a man ashore in a dinghy. She had to leave before the harbour water reached the lobsters. A foreign yacht very rarely visits Casablanca and the harbour officials were delighted to do everything they could to help us. The health officer insisted on paying for the bill of health we would require when we left. The city was the most beautiful we had yet seen with its blending of Moorish and modern architecture, given warmth by the inherent love of colour of these people. A lovely city to find in so desolate and empty a country. But like other African cities, it was a place of contrasts, for beside the spacious charm of palm-lined boulevards, there was the fascinating web of alleys of the Medina, the Arab quarter, where it was inadvisable to stroll after dark. In the shopping centre were the elegant shops and chic women one expects in a French city, but in the lurking byways and congested little dusty streets of the Medina, we found the sights and smells of the East. An emaciated cur nosing among the refuse 
a cobbler in his wayside stall, three beggars chanting a monotonous dirge and the harshness of sunlight on white-robed figures. Monsieur Tourniquet de Brant, the president of the yacht club by which we moored, lived in a small schooner with his wife and was a constant source of help and information to us. We shall always picture him in the saloon of his little ship, tapping the barometer at intervals and shaking his head, or see again his pyjama-clad figure shackling on an extra length of enormous chain if the glass fell a millibar during the night. It was through Monsieur Tourniquet's kindness that we were at last able to fit content with efficient lifelines. A friend of his owned a small engineering works and offered to make the stanchions and fittings for us at cost price and in the least possible time. We decided to delay our departure for a few days to take advantage of the offer and at half an hour's notice made out drawings for our requirements. Travelling in a yacht is usually one of the best methods of avoiding red tape but in Casablanca I got thoroughly enmeshed in it when I tried to obtain a drum of kerosene for our engine. There will be no trouble, I have been told. Just bring it straight to the boat. So I was walking innocently along behind the barrow and a shuffling Arab barrowman when we plunged into the dock area. The effect was electrical. My modest little caravan had disturbed a hornet's nest of very official officials. The fact that their English was non-existent and my French was even more fragmentary than usual since my efforts at Spanish added to the turmoil, I was jabbed at, clucked over and waved at until I had to wave back in self-defence. Quite evidently, wheeling a barrow load of kerosene about was simply not done. My ape-like barrow boy stood phlegmatically picking his teeth and muttering disjointed comments in some weird dialect of his own. At last I was bundled into the official jeep and driven at a devastating speed through the crowded docks. We ploughed through the masses, leaving a furrow of indignant humanity on either side. Why our path was not littered with the maimed and the dying, I do not know. Finally, I was ushered into the presence of the chief hornet, a fussy little man who, to my great delight, spoke English. An oasis at last in the desert of dialects. I learned that in some way I had made myself liable to untold penalties and fines, just how I could not tell. But in the end, I was told that I could go on my way unpunished and that if I returned the next day and filled in a clutter of forms, I could even have my kerosene. Our first attempt to leave Casablanca a week after our arrival ended in failure, for we emerged from the shelter of the harbour to find content sullenly plunging into a steep head sea caused by the tail end of a gale. Progress was negligible and the discomfort was acute, so we followed our usual policy of never fighting the sea if we could avoid it, turned tail and ran into the port again. One up for Monsieur Tourniquet. The next day, even his barometer was rising, so we set out again. The rollers were still surging towards the shore and bursting over the harbour wall and swirling into the docks. The wind was light and we used the motor to reach the more even swell of the open sea and to carry us through the windless coastal area. We were bound for the Canary Islands, about 600 miles away. There were six of us on board for this passage. Shortly before we left Casablanca, we had been approached by Uno and Carl. They wanted to get to South America, but all the ships were full. Could we carry them as far as the Canary Islands, where they might find a ship? They would be willing to pay for the passage. Uno and Carl were Finns and were emigrating. 
We liked them from the start and agreed to take them along. They would pay for the food consumed by the six of us on the trip, which they thought a very reasonable arrangement. Uno was quiet and middle-aged with an angular, tight-lipped face and dark, close-cropped hair, always very appreciative and quite imperturbable. Carl was a few years younger, with fair hair, twinkling blue eyes and a sense of humour which was quite apparent despite his poor command of English. They made ideal passengers and never for a moment did we regret having taken them with us. The rollers off the coast were too much for our stomachs. Both our guests had been to sea before and neither had ever been seasick, until that day, on the content. For 24 hours life on board was grim. While we were still under power, our patent log line took the opportunity of wrapping itself round the propeller, which meant diving under the hull with a knife to cut it free. But at least when one was in the water, one did not feel seasick. Our ship's log was considerably more comprehensive than the usual log and reflects the outlook on board, for it is written by each of us in turn on succeeding days. For this day, it was definitely mournful. By evening, some life was returning to the mummified forms on board and into those six haggard faces in the pallid light of a beautiful moon came a faint spark of hope that life might once again hold something worth living for and that the horrors of the day were past. We were recovering. One of the indications of our recovery was a feverish calculation of times and distances, an inevitable but fruitless occupation. We had about 550 miles to cover in seven days if Len was to keep his appointment. Len offered to buy us a dinner for every day before the 22nd of December that we spent in La Palma, and under that stimulus we hung out every stitch of canvas we could carry and used the motor whenever we were becalmed. To starboard, we set mainsail and topsail, and to port a raffi, squaresail, bonnet and drabbler. The sea was calm at last, with only the long, even ocean swell, scarcely perceptible to us, and playful little wavelets bashing along our sides. Life was supremely pleasant and peaceful. It was the essence of leisurely cruising. By day we could lie on deck in the sun, and at night to sleep on deck in the moonlight was a poem in itself. As usual, we had no luck with our fishing, but porpoises came to play around our bows, and Ernest, who was cook for the day, was seen to be prancing about the foredeck, muttering something about harpoons and juicy steaks. Carl and Uno were the only ones who showed any signs of industry and constantly asked for work. Carl, who was an excellent craftsman, fashioned a most elegant ensign staff out of a piece of driftwood, and both of them turned out a number of wooden tops for the tubular lifeline stanchions. I think they expected that they would live on a diet of clammy corned beef and hard tack, perhaps because their presence constituted a challenge to what culinary skill we had, the four of us vied with each other in the production of pies and tarts and puddings. Every evening, after we had given them the customary refusal to their offer to wash up, they said a polite but thank you as they went up on deck to sit for a while in the cockpit. There was only one instant which interrupted the peace of the passage. One morning, when we were almost becalmed, but no longer had sufficient fuel in hand to use the motor, Uno saw a large turtle frantically swimming after us. What was particularly humiliating was that, though the race was a close one, the turtle was clearly gaining, and a few minutes later he raised his horny old head beside our transom, having gained the shadow of our hull at last. 
the sight of a three-foot length of uncanned turtle so close to us conjured up visions of fresh soup and steaks and dispelled any sense of hospitality. We decided to give chase. Len, always practical, started some neat work with a boat hook over the transom, but flipping the turtle over did not inconvenience it in the slightest. And by this time, Don and Ernest had launched the dinghy and were in pursuit. For half an hour there ensued a tremendous battle of wits, which was somewhat complicated by the unexpected behaviour of our antagonist. Far from trying to escape from the dinghy, he apparently regarded it as a particularly well-developed member of his race, and with disarming friendliness, swam beneath and playfully bumped it with his barnacled shell. Meanwhile, Len and I kept content jilling around the area. All we could see of Ernest and Don were their posteriors propped over the dinghy gunwale while they peered into the water on one side and the turtle came up on the other. At various moments, bowlines and slip knots were festooned about his sagacious old head, but the running bowlines wouldn't run and the slip knots wouldn't slip, and eventually, tiring of the game, the turtle dived deep into the clear water and left us, while three small pilot fish, following his every movement, swam beneath his belly in the blue shadow. Somehow or other, we had managed to keep up the necessary daily average to hold our schedule, and now it seemed that Journey's End was in sight. We began to look for signs of the islands, and that evening, in the path of the sunset itself, we saw the tiny pimple of Tenerife's 12,000-foot peak, 60 miles away, and a moment later, Don, who has sharper eyes than any of us, spotted the very faint outline of Gran Canaria. They gave us a fix which confirmed our position. It was the seventh day out, December 19th. For some days, the barometer had shown a tendency to fall, but conditions looked stable and forecasting is so uncertain a task in these latitudes that we were not unduly worried. However, when the wind backed to the west shortly after dark, we began to wonder. By two o'clock in the morning, Content was romping along close-hauled, and a watery layer of cirrus started creeping across the sky, snuffing the stars like candles. With the topsail lowered, she sailed more easily, and we struggled to reach the lee of Gran Canaria before the blow came. About five o'clock in the morning it struck. No warning, just wham. I was lying in my sleeping bag on deck. No time for oilskins. I leaped up, yelled to those below, and lurched forward to tussle with the jib. These island waters are notorious for the speed with which they can develop a short, steep sea, and within a matter of minutes, Content was plunging her bows into the black waters, then lifting them to send a solid sheet of water surging along the deck. A stinging rain of spray swept over me and bulleted against the mast. The wind snapped and clawed at the heavy tanned sails. I glanced dismally back at my sleeping bag lying on deck in a bubbling torrent of foam. By the time the first onslaught was over, we had lowered all sail and decided to let her lie a hull until daylight. Dawn would come in less than an hour, so we sat together in the cockpit, sheltering from the rain as best we could. To cheer ourselves, we had one of our usual sing-songs, but the wind, impatient of this competition, snatched the words from our mouths and hurried forward to scatter them upon the seas. Daylight showed Las Palmas about 30 miles to windward. The wind was still blowing strongly and a big sea was running. Our only chance of making any progress was to use the remainder of our fuel and beat to windward with the help of the motor and with heavy staysail and reefed mainsail we slowly staggered forward. 
Our passengers took everything calmly. It was only afterwards that we learned how much poor Uno had suffered, not from seasickness, but from a firm conviction that we would be overwhelmed every time a particularly venomous wave surged towards us. Towards evening, the wind eased and we saw the lights of the city scarcely ten miles away, but our chart of the harbour was too small a scale for a night entry, so we settled down to the grim task of waiting for dawn. A city always looks wonderfully inviting and beautiful when seen at night from the sea. You do not see the dirt and squalor, you do not feel the stuffiness and the bustle. A port means a harbour, and a harbour means smooth, sheltered water, dry clothes, a warm bed and fresh food. So that night we took our watches crouched in the cockpit watching the lights of Las Palmas and the rain squalls sweeping over the shadowy hills beyond. The wind quieted during the night and when daylight came at last we were rolling on a windless sea and the first moistness of a fine drizzle was on the decks. We had just enough fuel to take us in. Len went below to start the motor. No luck. Fuel blockage. How Len did it, I do not know, but for two hours he sweated in that lurching engine room. At last, a shade green about the gills, but triumphant, he had got one carburetor cleared, which meant that two cylinders could function. The old grey mare, as she was always called on board, evidently considered two out of four cylinders to be a quorum, and a few minutes later was bonking and spluttering her way towards the shore. As we approached, we clustered forward to see what sort of port we were making, all that is except Carl. We found him down below, using his last minutes aboard to clean up the mess which the gale had left in the galley. Well, that's the end of this episode of Rare Nautical Reads. I hope you enjoyed it. If you have any aspirations to get out on the water yourself, find out what it's like to get beyond the horizon, out of sight of land, go over to spartanoceanracing.com. That's the company that I started seven years ago, which gives sailors of all ages, all backgrounds and all skill levels the opportunity to get onto 60 and 80 foot boats with professional crew and find out how to safely and effectively take on a long distance offshore passage. If you can't get out on the water, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash the mariner and there you'll find all the podcasts, you'll find blogs, you'll find gear reviews and also the Spartan online seamanship training syllabus, which we've been working on now for over a year. This means every month we put out a 45 minute to one hour video, very nitty gritty, very in detail, looking at exactly how you complete tasks on the boat, how systems work, how to navigate electronic gear, dealing with problems, fixing things, the engine, it's all in there. Um, the last, I guess, is YouTube. If you go over to YouTube forward slash The Mariner, also lots of stuff going on there and lots more of the video blogs there when we're out at sea moving around in these boats and you can see what we're up to. So don't let it just be in the stories. Connect with us on social media, connect with us um, on the water and make it a reality for yourself. Wherever you are, whatever you're doing, I hope you're safe and sound and look forward to sailing with you soon. Cheers. Cheers.